does God operate on a schedule? I grew up in an environment where that idea was unthinkable. Part of what made God God is that he was unpredictable. A spirit-filled person might be able to sense what God was doing and what he wanted right now. Uh, Someone with the gift of prophecy might even be able to tell what God had up his sleeve in the future. But to, to have it all laid out in the open, here's what I plan to do and when, did not seem like a very divine characteristic. God, like God's saying, let's see what's on the schedule. Oh, it looks like Wednesday. I'll forgive and atone your sins, just like last year. You know, it seemed unthinkable. And then I encountered the Torah. In the Torah, there is significance and there are patterns in time. There's significance in years or even in groups of years. There's significance to months and seasons to days of the week, and even portions and hours of the day. Now, as we know, God himself is timeless, but we humans are time-bound. Time is one of God's creations, and like most aspects of creation, it operates like a filter on divine revelation. Here's what I mean. God is infinite and beyond our comprehension. Nature stands between God and ourselves concealing most of his light from us, but letting a small ray peek through, small enough that we can perceive. It's like a a scientist who wants to study the surface of the sun to see the coronal mass ejections and sunspots. Scientists can't just point a telescope at the sun. They would literally burn their eyeballs out. So they use filters to block almost all the sunlight And this is what enables them to see anything at all. So the same goes for nature and for time. Time is like a a faceted diamond that God's light shines through. And at each position, you see different colors and, and sparkles of light. So what month is it currently in the Jewish calendar? It is Elul. And if you've been around here long enough, you know that the sparkle of God's light that shines on us during this month is his accessibility. The rabbis have noted that the name of the month of Elul forms an acronym for Ani Lidodi Vidodi Li. That is, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And so they envision uh, God, so to speak, as a king who emerges from his palace and enters his field where he invites subjects to come and, and, and before him with requests. It's a time when God is ready to listen if you are ready to speak to him. Now, approaching as soon is a different season, a season of evaluation and judgment. As Elul comes to a close, we're about to round a corner into this time of judgment, and we need a plan, a strategy. <laughs> we have this wealth of God's accessibility to us right now, But Tishrei is coming up. Our master Yeshua's parable of the shrewd manager follows a similar theme, and our master concluded, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So we have to take the resource of accessibility that we have in Elul and cash it in so that it's there waiting for us during the high holidays. During the High Holidays, we deal with three related but 
distinct concepts. We're, we're seeking three restorations from Hashem. One is forgiveness, which in Hebrew is slicha. The second is pardon, which in Hebrew is mechila. And the third is atonement, or in Hebrew, kapara. Slicha, mechila, kapara. Forgiveness, pardon, and atonement. Now, on, forgi- on, or on Yom Kippur, we do want forgiveness, and we do ask for pardon, uh, but our primary focus will be seeking atonement. Atonement is a condition where the Divine Presence unites with his world. For example, the Holy Spirit dwelling within the tabernacle. It's like a complete restoration of relationship. But how can we seek atonement without first dealing with the very real penalties for our sins? Unfortunately, the the, the debts we incur for our sins are too great for us to pay. So we ask God to pardon our debts. Now, pardoning means erasing the debt that someone owes. For example, uh, once one of my my children took something that belonged to a sibling and and would not give it back until I intervened. After forcing my child to give it back, I pointed out that the Torah imposes upon a thief an additional fine of a a fifth portion of the stolen item. We, We estimated the item's value at $9. So as Nine dollars divided by four is two dollars and twenty-five cents. An additional fifth, two dollars and twenty-five cents was owed. So after letting that fact sink in, I emphasized that the victim has the right to demand that entire amount, but may also elect to reduce that amount or pardon the debt completely. In this case, the victim did choose to pardon the entire debt, and I had the two of them shake on it to establish that the decision was firm. So, so I connect the pardoning of debts with Rosh Hashanah. On Rosh Hashanah, we're, we're not so much seeking atonement, but our eyes are focused on the coming year. We recognize that God decides who will live or, God forbid, die this coming year, and who will be made rich or, God forbid, re- be reduced to poverty. After all, the wages of sin, that is, the debt incurred by sin, is death. Literal, physical death. So our desire and prayer on Rosh Hashanah is that God would not repay us according to our deeds, but instead he would pardon us. But before we can even get to the level of pardon, there is a prerequisite. Forgiveness. See, forgiveness is the act of relinquishing the posture of enmity or ill will towards someone who commits an offense. So, in other words, suppose someone does something that offends or harms you. In doing so, they have demonstrated their opposition to you and are not concerned with your best interest. By hurting you, they have showed that, to some extent, they're not on your team, either by accident or on purpose On a large scale or small, they have declared war against you and have become your enemy. And as such, you have the judicial right to oppose them back so that they can't keep harming you. They're now your competitor, and you feel a need to act defensively against them to prevent being hurt again. However, Yeshua taught us that we should forgive. 
That means no longer categorizing someone as an enemy, even though they have demonstrated that about themselves. You no longer oppose them and their purposes. Now, this works best when the offender has apologized, showing that they regret their, the, that their action caused you harm and they retract their declaration of war. Now that you've forgiven them, you're once again on the same team. You're seeking mutual benefit. That's forgiveness. When we sin, we demonstrate to God that we're not on his team. Either on purpose or on accident, sin declares war against God and tells him that we stand in opposition to his purposes in this world, that we have a different plan of all the stupid things to do to declare war on the God of the universe. Many times in, in the Psalms and the prophets, we hear about God's anger or wrath. This is not an emotional outburst. Emotional anger has no place in this discussion. In the scriptures, this term simply describes God acting to defeat or incapacitate or deny goodness to someone who has become his enemy. For example, in Psalm 95, we read, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. So that is, they made themselves an enemy, so I opposed them by denying access to the land. So now that we've made ourselves God's enemy, how do we expect God to pardon our debts, or for that matter, dwell among us? Who would willingly choose to do this for someone who has declared war on them? So our first step is to ask forgiveness, to seek slicha, to ap sincerely apologize and to ask God if we can be on his team again. So a classic example of this is the sin of the golden calf and the intervention by Moses. Notice how God interprets the idolatry of the Israelites as a declaration of war and expresses his intent to retaliate in Exodus 32, starting in verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Moses knows that Eventually, this people needs atonement, but not yet. First, as a stalling maneuver, he invokes the merit of patriarchs to dissuade God from immediate annihilation. Exodus 32, starting in verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Okay, then he runs down the mountain, and his next course of, of action is to establish that the people regret their actions. They must repent, retracting their declaration of war and 
uh, reestablishing their loyalty to God. So what does Moshe tell them Uh, in verse uh, 26? Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on each side of you and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You've sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Okay, so Moses ultimately wants to achieve atonement, but he can't quite yet. So what does he ask Hashem for? Forgiveness. And look in Exodus 32, starting in verse 32. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But but the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Moshe does not seem very satisfied with that answer, but he knows that God considers him to be a friend and not an enemy. So he asks for the secret to forgiveness, and God obliges him. Verse 13, Exodus 33, 13, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Let me skip down to verse 18. And the Lord said to Moses, This is the very thing that I, you have, or this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy in whom I will show mercy. Wait a second. Okay, we have some slippery religious terms to define. What's the difference between being gracious and showing mercy? Well, being gracious in in Hebrew is chanina. It means granting favor. So in this case, it's talking about applying this favor to the undeserving. And so in our liturgy, we have certain prayers called tachanunim from the same root that seek undeserved favor. And the Hebrew word for mercy here is rachamim, which is better understood as compassion. This is when you grant someone kindness because you empathize and you understand the suffering that they're enduring. Again, our our liturgy includes prayers of this type that ask God to take note of our suffering. Then God obliges Moshe's request and, and shows him the formula for seeking God's grace and mercy, and here it is, in verse 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Well, with that on the table, Moshe knows that it's his 
chance. It's a time of favor. So now he places his request. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and sin, and take us for your inheritance. Ooh, the, the ESV is not precise here, but the art scroll gets it gets it right. Pardon is the wrong word. The word is salachta. Moshe is asking for slicha, for forgiveness. For Israel to be and to remain on his side, on his team, still in covenant with him, that's what Moshe wants. And how does God respond? Behold, I am making a covenant, in verse 10. So God revealed to Moshe uh, a, a weapon of mass forgiveness. This is the kind of weapon that you hope never to have to use. But alas, Moses did have, have to use it the next time there was a major sin. Which sin was that? Well, that was the evil report against the promised land. Look at Numbers chapter 14, starting in verse 17. It says, And now, please, let the power of the Lord be as great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon, which actually should say forgive, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned, well, which should, should say, I have forgiven according to your word. So now we've witnessed the power of these 13 attributes, the, the, this weapon of mass forgiveness in action. So look, look at what the sages have said about this concept. This is out of the Gemara in Masechet uh, Rosh Hashanah. The verse states, And the Lord passed by him, or by before him, and proclaimed. So that's Exodus 34, 6. Rabbi Yochanan said, Were it not explicitly written in the verse, it would be impossible to say this, as it would be insulting to God's honor. The, the verse teaches that the Holy One, blessed be he, wrapped himself in a prayer shawl like a prayer leader and showed Moses the structure of the order of the prayer. He said to him, Whenever the Jewish people sin, let them act before me in accordance with this order. Let the prayer leader wrap himself in a prayer shawl and publicly recite the 13 attributes of mercy, and I will forgive them. So what's happening here is that Rabbi Yochanan does not have access to the ESV translation. So where the Hebrew says, V'yavor al panav, Instead of reading it as they, that he, as he passed by before him, Rabbi Yochanan reads it as he crossed over his face, and so he interprets it to mean that he wrapped himself in a talit. And so, in the Jewish reading of this verse, Hashem demonstrates for Moses exactly how this procedure should work liturgically. Now, in ancient times, when the Jewish people experienced a tragedy. Um, such as a famine, they would observe that God appears to be acting with wrath. So let's realign ourselves with his purposes by seeking forgiveness. So the community leaders would proclaim a fast, and they would recite the 13 attributes in this manner, along with prayers for grace and prayers for compassion. Eventually, this became known as slichot, from the word slicha, meaning forgiveness. So after seeing the power of this process 
the Jewish community began to ask, why are we waiting until a tragedy occurs? We can launch a preemptive strike and use this strategy during the season of repentance. So the Jewish community instituted these slichot prayers every day from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. The slichot were incorporated into the Yom Kippur services. So if you've been here for those services, they will be familiar to you. But then there were some people on the front lines of this battle for forgiveness who wanted to fast for those 10 days. So, you know, a, a daytime fast, they would eat at night. But they're told, you can't fast all those days. I mean, you, you can't fast on Rosh Hashanah. That's a holiday. And, and there are two days of Rosh Hashanah. You can't fast on Shabbat. And, and the day before Yom Kippur is also a festive day when fasting is forbidden. But they said, we need 10 days. So they made a plan. The Ashkenazim said, okay, well, we need to strike when the timing is right to maximize the impact. We'll give you those four extra days. And in fact, let's just start on Saturday night when we just come off Shabbat. You know, Rosh Hashanah is the anniversary of creation, but well, actually the creation of Adam, which was on the sixth day. So in the days of Elul, in the week leading up to Rosh Hashanah, corresponding to the creation, uh, we'll, this, this will draw the attention to the whole purpose of God creating humans in order to be in relationship with them. <clears throat> and so the Sephardim said, well, you know what? We're just going to take it all the way back to the first of Elul. And Ashkenazim responded, you go right on ahead. We'll, we'll be right behind you. So the, the final question is, when would be the ideal time of day to launch our attack? Have you ever tried to ask someone for, for a favor, but you just ex- asked at exactly the wrong time? Well, time is very significant. The time of day is very significant and symbolic in the scripture. So after a few calculations, they decided that the ideal time is between astronomical midnight and the break of dawn, a, you know, a night attack, an early morning attack, because biblically, this is the time that God's, that represents God's mercy and redemption. You know, you think about King David and his harp awakening the dawn. So like as, as King David said in Psalm 69, let my prayer to you be at an etrat zon, at a time of favor. So the worst time would be at evening as it's starting to get dark. And, and during daylight, eh, it's not ideal, but it's okay. The first night of slichot in Ashkenazi communities it, it's a it's very special. It's it's a really big deal. It happens at the earliest time possible. Um, so that's at at uh, actual astronomical midnight, which is due to daylight saving time is is about one a.m. So in Jewish communities all over the world, that first night comes alive as people pour into the synagogues, and um, there are men there. There are also women there. Uh, people eager to connect with Hashem and to conquer their Yetzer Hara. So uh, despite the late hour, the room is filled with energy and passion. You know, it's not a, it's not a Shabbat. It's not a Yom Tov. There's no problem with, with instruments and using microphones. You know, we're going into this battle with music. I, w- I would say that of all the services that you might find in an Orthodox synagogue throughout the year, Slichot is probably the one that most resembles my experiences in, in the charismatic praise and worship sessions. So, so okay, so we learned that reciting the 13 attributes is a weapon of mass forgiveness, but it's not our only one. 
uh, our Master Yeshua taught a, a, us a critical uh, and crucial tool that we should deploy immediately and often. He said, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I, I don't know if I like how formulaic that is, but it's not really up to me, is it? The Messiah promised that if we forgive others when they do wrong to us, then God will forgive us. Yeah, it really is that simple. So let's do it. Let's do it, guys. This is going to be great. I, I already explained to you what forgiveness is, and it's clearly more than just saying some words. But words can be helpful. And, and here's a traditional prayer included in the bedtime Shema uh, that I feel very succinctly and clearly expresses this concept of forgiveness. It says, I hereby forgive whoever has upset me, provoked me, or sinned against me, whether it affects my body, my finances, my dignity, or anything I have, whether it was done by force or willingly, by accident or on purpose, through speech or through action. So let no one be punished on my account. So I propose that as disciples of Yeshua, we should start Slichot with this declaration of forgiveness. Now, we have one final tool in our arsenal that I would like to draw attention to today. The apostles teach us about this weapon of mass forgiveness in 1 John 1, starting in verse 8. It says, If we have no sin, and we then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So according to Yochanan, if we confess, he forgives. Well, actually, like most New Testament principles, it's not just a New Testament principle. Look, in the Proverbs 28, 13, it says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Or in Psalm 32, 5, it says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. So the sages derived the concept of confession from, well, you guessed it, the Torah. And it is specifically in the context of the theft of sacred property. So it says in uh, Numbers 5, starting in verse 6, speak to the people of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed. Right there in the Torah. So the sages derive from this that confession is a prerequisite for any of the atoning sacrifices to take effect. But why choose the, the sin of theft to introduce the concept of confession? It's because, if you think about it, every sin is in some sense a theft. You have stolen something that belongs to God. So, all right, so what do we do? Set up confessional booths? Well, no. Uh, it, it's good, as it says in James, to confess to one another, uh, to have people that you're accountable to, uh, whether that's a friend or, you know, a leader. But good news, 
confession is built right into the Slichot prayers. So here's how it reads. It says, Our God and God of our fathers, let our prayers come before you and do not disregard our supplication. We are not so brazen to or stubborn to claim to you, O Lord, our God and God of our fathers, that we are righteous and have not sinned, but we and our fathers have sinned. And then it goes on to list each of the sins that we've committed. It says, we have become guilty. We have betrayed. We have robbed. We have slandered. We have caused iniquity. We have caused wickedness. We have been arrogant. We have been violent. We have libeled. We have given harmful advice. We have lied. We have mocked. We have rebelled. We have despised. We have disobeyed. We have committed iniquity. We have transgressed. We have shown hostility. We have been stubborn. We have been wicked. We have acted corruptly. We have been disgraceful. We have gone astray. We have led others astray. Now, you might read that list and say, well, I didn't do that one. But I suggest that these 24 violations are all like theft in that they represent every sin. For example, every sin is an act of slander in that it spreads lies about God and about yourself. Every sin is an act of arrogance because it prioritizes your personal desires as more important than God's orders and the needs of others. Now, confession is like testimony in court. It works because it eliminates the possibility of deniability. So if you remain in denial, you cannot be forgiven of sin because you don't acknowledge that it exists. So confession is an important weapon in our arsenal. All right, you know you might be saying to yourself, "Why am I listening to this? I've I'm already forgiven." But you've made two critical errors. First of all, you made the mistake of thinking that this was all about you. It's not. Okay, sure, your personal sins matter to us all because they affect us all, but Slichot is about the bigger picture. It's about the relationship between God and the entire community, the entire Jewish people, and the entire world. This world is in a broken relationship with God. Slichot is not about a bunch of individuals privately getting right with God. In fact, there are several key sections of Slichot, including the 13 attributes, that one cannot say unless they are praying with the minion. Slichot are about the ultimate restoration, the coming of Messiah and the kingdom of God. Your your second error uh, might be the notion that forgiveness is all or nothing. You know, some people hold a non-biblical faulty concept that if you have even one unforgiven sin, then you will spend eternity in hell. If you hold this scary belief, then you will also need to believe that forgiveness happens only once and it's all-encompassing even for sins you're still in the act of committing. There is nothing in the Bible that accords with these beliefs. There is no healthy relationship on earth that works this way. The Bible teaches that we seek God's forgiveness frequently. We can do this and still feel assured that even when we do sin, we still have a place in God's kingdom. Now, I realize that that uh, well, this year is uh, uh, incredibly unique, and we will not be having a 1 a.m. service of, for Sleekout this 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 week. But and and most of you 
uh, will also probably not be going through the the full Art Scroll Sleekout service every morning. But uh, nonetheless, I want you to understand these concepts because, for one, uh, they will we will be encountering them in the Yom Kippur liturgy. And additionally, I want you to, to, to I want to ask you to try to say your own mini slichot every day, and you can do that by following this outline. Number one, before you begin, forgive everybody for everything. And second, by praising, begin by praising God. You know, ideally using some scripture to do that. Um, next, admit to God that we are unworthy of His favor, and yet ask for it anyway. Then. Draw attention to the suffering that we endure and ask God for, for God's compassion. And, and this year, we have a lot to draw on. Um, and then finally, uh, confess that we have sinned. So now in, now, in each of these cases, notice that I, that I said we and not you, because we don't go into battle alone, even when we're praying a, a, apart from one another. You know, for many centuries, the Jewish people have been fighting this battle year after year. And uh, for the most part, have been missing this, w- this one key tool, which is the power of the name of Messiah. You know, I, I, I think what, what, what happens when in this place you've got a congregation of disciples of Yeshua, and even though we're not all gathering together as, as, as one um, this year, but even in our own homes, we stand and we rise with the Jewish people in the middle of the darkness of night, and we drop the nuclear option, which is the name of Yeshua, into these Selichot prayers. The effect could be a game changer, and we all need a game changer, I think, in this current season, this current year. Uh, may God grace us with, uh, with a, a, a wonderful new year, uh, with all things restored and, and brought back, back to how they should be, and the, and the Messiah should come, and uh, and uh, and everyone should know God in His kingdom. Shabbat Shalom.